We concluded last Sunday by affirming that loving our enemies is not easy. As Lapide said, loving our enemies is probably the most frequently cited yet least practiced saying of Jesus in the New Testament. I shared as a part of my challenge that loving our enemies is not a magic formula, it's not a trick, but it has to do with how we posture ourselves toward all human beings, the other. And as a tool, I suggested that we, we do some revisiting of what we know is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Jesus could have said, do unto your family and fellow Jews as you would have them do unto you. But he didn't. He said, do unto others. And I mentioned the haunting question for me, and I mean this. Uh, The haunting question of Jesus that said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And yet the truth of the matter is that that we are pretty homogenous. You know that word that's on the side of milk bottles? Homogenized? We're pretty homogenized. We're pretty lily white as we look around. And that's not the makeup of our community. You see, the call of Jesus was to take the good news to all people groups, all ethnic groups. And yet the majority of our churches have failed the test. We remain pretty segregated, even if not racially, at least socioeconomically or politically. Now, before I dig into the text this morning, I want to stress once more the importance of righteousness as it pertains to the development of of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began the sermon with a description of how a citizen in the new kingdom would live. We refer to them as the Beatitudes. And I demonstrated to you that that word blessed is not to be thought of in the terms of I have been blessed by getting a gift. That's not the way Jesus is using that word and not actually what that word makarios refers to. No. Blessed referred to a fulfilling and flourishing life. If you are living in this way, then your life will be flourishing. It'll be fulfilled. And that was even, I noted, with the inclusion of persecution. Not a matter of if, but we will. If we're living the Christian life, we will experience persecution. Then, before moving into the first of those six triads that we looked at, and there's actually 14 included in the sermon, not antitheses, since Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not abolish them, 
Before continuing, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now open your Bibles. You're reasonable people. Chapter 5 verse 19 begins with the word therefore. And the word therefore introduces the deduction, the conclusion. Jesus wanted us to know that based on his principle about the enduring validity of the law and his own attitude with respect to it, you and I as Christians are to be obedient to the law. I hear people all the time say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament, that's the law. I don't understand that. I really don't. Did you know that every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament except one? The only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament is the one about honoring the Sabbath day. Now, why would that be the case? Because the day that we honor now is the first day of the week when Jesus resurrected. And my grandmother, bless her heart, she always wanted to refer to Sunday as the Sabbath. And, and my dad over and over and over again would say, No, Mom, Sunday's not the Sabbath. But all of the other commandments are repeated. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And because not an iota, not a dot, not the two littlest markings in the Hebrew language, neither of those would pass away until all was fulfilled. Therefore, greatness in the kingdom of God would be measured by conformity to the law and obedience. And did you notice that personal obedience isn't enough? No. As Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we're also be supposed to be teaching others so that they won't relax the law in any way. And Jesus now goes even further. Not only is greatness in the kingdom assessed by a righteousness, a way of living that conforms to the law, but entry into the kingdom is impossible without a conformity that is better, much better actually, because the Greek is emphatic, than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness. Now think about that for just a second. The scribes and the Pharisees were famous, or maybe I should say infamous, for their righteousness. They not only had the Ten Commandments, they also had a fence that they had built around the Ten Commandments to make sure that those ten didn't get violated that included 248 more commandments of a positive nature and 365 prohibitions. So to make sure they didn't 
uh, violate the Sabbath day. They actually had the number of steps that a person could take away from their home so that they weren't considered traveling. They were just doing those necessary things on the Sabbath. So how, how can Christian righteousness exceed Pharisaic righteousness? And how can this superior Christian righteousness be made a condition of entering God's kingdom? Now some would say that this is just teaching a doctrine of salvation by good works. But it is absolutely not. Jesus moved right into the answer. He moved right into the answer of these questions by showing that Christian righteousness surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. Yeah, there is a truth to the statement that it was a new heart righteousness which the prophets foresaw as one of the blessings of the Messianic age. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33. I will put my law within them. I'll write it upon their hearts. Now, what we've seen over the last several weeks in terms of the six triads that make up the rest of Matthew 5 were Jesus' examples of that greater or should I say deeper righteousness. And remember, the chapter divisions were not a part of the original text. So, as chapter 5 ends, we move right on into his call at the conclusion of our text last Sunday to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, to be whole, to be righteous, to his warning. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Our sixth chapter begins with the fundamental warning or the thesis, the statement of how specific Torah observant behaviors are to be done. And, and it's an important point that we need to recognize. Each of these three pious acts that comprise the majority of chapter six, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, are a significant part of the traditional righteousness. They are Torah or law observances that are prescribed. And the emphasis of Jesus is, once again, not on abolishing them, but on doing them right. 
So the fundamental warning of Jesus in verse 1 has to do with the method, the how, the motivation. It's important to acknowledge that according to Jesus, Christian righteousness has these two dimensions, moral and religious. Now, some people speak as if they imagine that their major duty as Christians lies in the sphere of religious activity, whether it's in public, as in going to church, or in private in terms of spiritual disciplines and or devotional practices. Others have reached, uh, so have reacted so sharply against that kind of emphasis that they, uh, on piety, that they actually talk about a religionless Christianity. They've turned against the church. They live on a horizontal dimension. For them, the church is just another secular city, and prayer is simply a loving encounter with a neighbor. But there's no need to choose between piety and morality. There's no need to choose between religious devotion in church and active service in the world. Between loving God and loving our neighbor. Since Jesus taught that authentic Christian righteousness includes both. Moreover, in both both spheres of righteousness... I, I, get, I need to get away from those words that begin with S-A-H-S-P-H until I get used to this piece of plastic in my mouth. In both spheres of righteousness, Jesus issues an insistent call to his followers to be different. And a major difference will be the manner in which we go about doing good. Not to be seen by others. Not as a part of a religion show. In Matthew 5 we saw Jesus' instruction was for our righteousness to be greater than the Pharisees because even though they obeyed the letter of the law, they were caught up in vicious cycles trying to do whatever they could to get out of doing the law. And while they managed to show minimal love to each other, their definition of neighbor was very different, which kept them from loving the other, especially their enemies. And now, in Matthew 6, with regard to religious righteousness, Jesus draws the same two contrasts. He takes the ostentatious religion of the Pharisees first, and he says, you must not be like the hypocrites. And then he moves on to the mechanical formalism and says, don't be like them either. He's pointing out that essential difference, the essential difference for us as authentic Christians is that our righteousness is not just an external manifestation. Only that has to be a part of it. But it's also a part of the single secret things of the heart. So by way of application, Jesus examines three areas. Three recognized pious acts. And he digs in in terms of motivation and intention. Our giving, our prayer, and our fasting. 
Today we're going to look at the first of the, the three as you heard in the text that we've read. And he begins by stating the criterion. When you give. There's much teaching in the Old Testament on compassion for the poor. The Greek word for almsgiving in the, that Jesus uses in verse 2 means a deed of mercy or a deed of pity. And since our God is merciful, as Jesus had just emphasized, making His Son rise on the evil and on the good, sending rain on the just and on the unjust, then you and I as His people need to be kind and merciful also. Jesus obviously expected you and I as His disciples to be generous givers. Did you notice? Jesus didn't say, if you give. He's not going to say, if you pray. Nor is He going to say, if you fast. In all three cases, Jesus says, when. When you do these things. But do them generously. But generosity isn't even enough. Throughout the sermon, Jesus demonstrates his concern with motivation, with the hidden thoughts that are in the heart. In fact, if you'll remember in his exposition of the Sixth and Seventh Commandments, dealing with murder and adultery, he said that there is a way that we can have unwarranted anger that's a kind of hard murmur, murder. And there is a way that we can have a kind of heart adultery. And now in the manner of giving, he has the same concern about secret thoughts. The question is not so much what the hand is doing, passing over some cash or writing a check or giving food or giving clothing. No, the question has to do with what the heart is thinking while the hand is doing it. And there are three possibilities. Either we can be seeking the praise of men, and all of us probably have somebody in mind, that every time they gave anything, no matter what it was, they called attention to it. Or, we can do it in which, a way in which we're not letting other people know, but we're really puffed up about it. Oh, man, look what I'm doing. Or, thirdly, we can do it with just a desire to please our Heavenly Father. It was a ravenous hunger for the praise of men that was the besetting sin of the Pharisees. You receive glory from one another, Jesus said to them. And you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. In John 4, 12, he says, They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So insatiable was their appetite for human commendation that it spoiled their giving. In fact, Jesus points out that the way they turned it into a, a public performance was actually with, he pictures a pompous Pharisee having people blowing trumpets, calling their attention to the giving that was about to take place. And the word he uses, hypocrisy, 
That's a word that was used in classical Greek uh, to describe an orator or an actor. They would put on a mask. Put on a mask. That is who the hypocrite was. Somebody putting on a mask that looked like they were smiling when behind the mask they could have been in angry. No longer doing what they're doing for the service, but a disguise, impersonating, doing it for applause. So having forbidden his followers to give to the needy in an arrogant and an ostentatious manner, such as the Pharisees were doing, Jesus now tells us the Christian way. The application of the principle is that our giving is to be done in secret. And Jesus expresses it by another negative. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you'll be giving maybe in secret. Now, I don't think it's hard to grasp the meaning of that. I mean, not only are we not to tell other people about our Christian giving, there is a sense in which we're not to tell ourselves about it, not to make a big deal over it, because the more we are self-conscious about what we're doing, the more that will turn into self-righteousness, puffed up with pride. And so subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it's actually possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret from men while simultaneously dwelling on it ourselves. And by his words, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Bonhoeffer writes, Jesus was sounding the death knell of the old man. For self-centeredness belongs to the old life. The new life in Christ is one of uncalculating generosity. That comes from a man who was in prison for his belief, who was facing death, and who, by the way, was executed after the decision had already been made to sign the peace treaty. What then is the reward which the Heavenly Father gives the secret giver? Well, let me begin by saying what it's not. These chairs are wood. They're not gold as you may have seen on a television evangelist of prompt. And I am not going to say what I heard him say many, many times. You give, and I promise you, you'll never be able to outgive God. You'll receive back. And he was talking about receiving back material things for the material giving. He didn't even hide it at times. What Jesus is talking about in terms of the rewards is not something that is going to be public. 
It's not going to be something that's going to be necessarily future. I think it's probably the only reward which genuine love actually wants when making a gift to the needy. And that's namely to see the need relieved. We give to the hungry person so that we can see that they're not hungry. We give to the one who is needing clothing so that we can see that now they are not embarrassed by what they have to wear. When through our gifts the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the sick are healed, the oppressed freed and the lost saved, the love which prompted the gift should be the sense of satisfaction. And that kind of love, which is God's own love expressed through us, brings with it secret joys. And so righteous giving desires no other reward. You know, when I was young, I used to have a hard time believing my dad. When he was administering a corrective discipline, and he would say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> Sometimes he wasn't even using his hands, so how could it hurt him more than it hurt me? But I have learned, now in my 70th year of living, that there are some things that hurt that we have to do. It's called tough love. Saying no. Saying you need to do this or else. And then sticking with the consequences. And I've learned that there is also a satisfaction and joy. We went Friday night to the restaurant. And we ate. We were there right when they opened. And we were the first ones to finish eating. So I got up and I paid our bill. And I, I said to Jackie, are we the first people to pay our bill? She said, yeah. I said, the first money that you've earned for your restaurant? She said, well, yeah, well, the restaurant was full. I mean, it's not like, okay. So I said, so what? Uh, That'll be one of the dollars that goes behind. You know how people do that? They put that first dollar. She said, absolutely. And she said, and I'm going to put your name on it. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Because my grandfather always said, fools' names and fools' traces always appear in public places. Fool's names and fool's traces. I think about it every time I see graffiti. But I also think about it when I see buildings that have to have somebody's name on it to show that they had given. What reward are we seeking? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning thanking you so much this time of the year for the gift of your son.
help us to show that same love to others throughout this month so that they might see the real reason for this season in experiencing, in being receivers of love. The love you have given to us that we give to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.